0: Your Positive positive. Positive. Imprint. 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 Stories are everywhere. People and their positive actions inspire positive achievements. Your PI could mean the world to you. Get ready for your positive imprint.
1: Well, hello to all of my listeners. Here's a bit of trivia for you. I have listeners in 91 countries. Thank you so much for being a part of it. I am Catherine host of this variety show featuring amazing people from all over the world. Your Positive Imprint Podcast. What's your PI? Today's Positive Imprint guest is Shelly White. She's an assistant professor of public health and sociology and program director of the Master of Public Health at Simmons University in Massachusetts. Because of her experiences, she chose a career in health and human rights. Today... She takes you on a journey into global realities. Well, okay, I have to first tell you, I was on the airplane and you know how I am. I love to meet people and I love to hear stories. Well, I'm flying home, my husband is sitting silently reading his book and I'm sitting in the middle and there's this lady sitting next to me and she's knitting away. I thought, so I asked her what she was doing, what her knitting was for. And we started this wonderful conversation and oh my gosh, what a positive imprint she has. I am so happy we sat together. Her name is Shelly K. White and she is a professor at Simmons University as well as the director of the Master of Health and Health Equity at the University. So it's it's so nice to see you. It's too bad we couldn't have had this wonderful a recorded conversation on the airplane but it was a little bit loud.
0: <laughs> it was <laughs> yes I'm glad to connect again in quieter circumstances. <laughs> yeah well it's good to see your face again and oh well likewise I was so thrilled I was just saying when I got home to my partner what luck it was that I sat next to you and how thrilling it's been actually to listen to your podcast ever since and to learn about all these amazing positive imprints so it's really an honor to be a part of this well, your program and what I think of is really a much broader project in telling these incredible stories.
1: Oh, well, thank you so much. And I'm I, I I love to find and uncover these stories. I love featuring people like you and, of course, all of my past guests. So we're going to dig right into your positive imprint. You've been all over the world for... <laughs> Not just your job with the university, but also with your nonprofit organization, your we organization.
0: Yes. let's start with we. Sure. Yeah, I've been really lucky, I guess, over my my lifetime to to wear a couple hats and. WE is an organization, it's a nonprofit that was started originally as an organization called Free the Children. And it was started in 1995 by a 12 year old um, young boy named Craig Kielberger and his older brother. And essentially, you know, Craig had learned about the issue of child labor and and at a young age, it really struck him, uh, you know, how could he be 12 year olds and 12 years old and have the access to education and resources and um, so forth that he did while other kids around the world didn't have that opportunity. This was in the context of learning about a young boy named Iqbal Masih who had been a former child laborer and had been speaking out about conditions of child labor. And when he returned home to Pakistan, where he grew up, he he was murdered. And so this story of Iqbal Masih really was the tipping off point for the growth of this amazing organization, WE, which since then has grown into Uh, a worldwide network of young people helping other young people thinking about issues of children's human rights and really digging in in community development to work for social change. And it's been an amazing journey to travel with these young people uh, and to sort of journey with them in thinking about what does it mean to develop a skill set for social change. And that's just what they do with young and uh, really people of all ages. And so your journey, so what
1: you've partaken in this journey, as you call it, uh, with We, and you've been places with The Young.
0: Yes, well, people of all ages, really, when I met you um, on that plane, I was traveling with my own master students to southern Arizona, right to the border to really learn about the history of our border, the ways that it has been militarized, the ways that it's shaping uh, health and well-being for folks on both sides of the border, And also to think about issues of environmental justice there in that space in Southern Arizona. And so that's a trip that I uh, designed as part of this master's program, but in partnership with WE and its sister organization, me to we which runs um, these kinds of programs around the world um, to expose folks to issues of inequality and injustice, and also to think about Possibilities of social change. So I've also had the opportunity and privilege to travel and work with young folks in in Kenya and Tanzania um, and in Ghana and in Ecuador, where we run some of our other programming through We.
1: Just listening to this is just incredible. But going back to the foundation of the beginnings of yeah. We is you know, it wrenches at your heart. And, and and definitely educating and exposing the world to these issues. Let's go to the group that you had in Mexico, they, or not in Mexico, but that you took to the border. Why, yes. why the border there? What was for your public health issues um, and your health equity? What reason for there? Because you, you have these issues globally. So what made you decide yes. that particular spot?
0: Yeah, well, I guess, to be honest, for me, my own journey into working in global health started with the border. I was about 20 years old as a university student and had the opportunity to travel to Tijuana in Mexico and to volunteer for just a short bit in a migrant youth shelter, and it was pretty life-changing being there. I had studied Spanish as my minor, so I spoke the language and, and sort of... Fell in love with some of these phenomenal staff members who were working every day with young people around trying to um, work toward family reunification and so forth. Anyhow, um, the first day I arrived in Tijuana, I learned the story of two young boys who attempted to swim around the, the wall itself. And in San Diego, in Tijuana, that wall is a sheer corrugated metal wall, or it was back then in the 90s. And these two young brothers were attempting to swim around and they began to drown. And a man on the Mexican side saw this happening. He swam out to try to rescue them. He brought in the younger brother. I believe he was about eight years old. And when he swam out to save his older brother, both he and that young boy drowned. And that was literally my introduction to the border. And, you know, I think for the first time, it was, it was the beginning, or, or a big part of the beginning of my journey, sort of grappling with what it means to be an American, what it means to be a white person, what it means to be a woman of some economic privilege in a, in a world of incredible global inequality. And so I was sort of confronting the border as an American, a U.S. American, for the first time through, through that experience, and then after graduating, moved back down and lived in the shelter and worked in the shelter for a bit. So for my students you know, the opportunity to bring them to the border. These days, Arizona is the most heavily crossed section of the border because of the ways that um, through the 90s and then forward, the border changed in California. And it's driven migrants into some of the most dangerous crossing regions in the desert, where the conditions are so harsh that, you know, what we've seen is increased mortality. And I think for my program for Master of Public Health students who want to understand health equity, which basically understands these these disparities in health as not just, you know, face value differences, but as disparities that are, they're unnecessary and preventable. And so we want to get really explicit about how policies and structures shape health outcomes. And I think the border has incredible lessons to teach about those inequalities and what shapes them.
1: Well, I think you said a word, a key word, preventable. Yes. For me, that's an
0: incredibly
1: powerful word.
0: Yeah, well you know, prevention is such a powerful word. So thank you for for noting that because it's really to me it's what drew me to public health as a profession is that, you know, if you compare public health and medicine, medicine is often responding in in a moment of needing a cure. You know, something has already started in terms of a health a health issue or a health outcome. And in public health, our job is to really think before these issues arise, before disease or disability or illness occurs, what, what can we do to prevent it? But we also do it at the level of populations instead of individuals. And so when it comes to the border, you know, we're there to learn and think about what could be done to prevent the deaths, the injuries, even the social and economic circumstances that really drive migration. And so the ways that we think about it is we take sort of a deeply historical perspective and think back, you know, all the way back to the Gadsden Purchase and the history of how our border shifted um, and what that meant for folks of Mexican descent who, you know, previously would have called Arizona or spaces in Texas home as Mexican citizens. But we also think about the ways that the border divided Native American communities, sometimes right in half, like the Tohono Oto Nation and the Pima and and other uh, Native American folks. And so we go into that deep history, but then we're really thinking in this course about recent history since the 1990s, since a, a, a whole series of policies passed that deeply militarized our border. But that happened at the very moment uh, that we also passed NAFTA, a trade policy that really, unfortunately, plunged Mexicans, uh, Mexico's economy in, into some some pretty tough turmoil. And so at a very moment when you saw folks losing their livelihood, especially Mexican farmers, after we passed NAFTA, we also clamped down the border. And that just seems like a juxtaposition that is indeed a recipe for, for tough times for folks. So, yeah, I think in terms of thinking about prevention, I hope that my students, I hope that as we're there and thinking about these issues, we're grappling with the deeper histories that have shaped migration, not just for Mexicans, but for folks throughout Central America with some of the politics that unfolded in the 1980s and 1990s and there forward. And that we can think broadly about what it will take to structure opportunity uh, that is accessible to to all instead of just accessible uh, to those of privilege.
1: Mm, So you had this group down with you. Do they ever tell you, your students,
0: about what they thought of their experience well, we—I'll tell you—in six days, Catherine. I'm so impressed with these students because we—we <laughs> really run them ragged in the sense that, you know, what I—what I guess what I feel is that we have such a limited moment to really expose ourselves and to try to get the different sides of this story and to understand that complex history. Right? Anytime you travel somewhere new, I think it's beholden on us as visitors. To do our homework and do our work, so our students read quite a bit before they arrive, so they get a sense of that history and the context and the policies and the human stories. And then we do a variety of things. We meet with some of the humanitarian groups that are that are helping folks in the desert, um, that are responding to the human needs and the human issues, whether it's medical or you know sort of food and water, because it's. What happens when folks do cross in these dangerous desert regions is that they quickly can become dehydrated with high heat, but it also is incredibly cold in the desert in the evening. There are you know, animals and scavengers, but it's also just incredibly rugged terrain. So the amount of injuries and then, and then deaths um, is often a result of those environmental conditions. So we meet with folks who are doing that work, but we also go in and uh, we went into the courts in Tucson to witness Operation Streamline, and this is a system of courts that um, processes deportation in mass. Um, so we were there for just over two hours and watched. Um, I think it was about seventy-six people um, being deported. And so they line up in groups of seven, uh, shackled at hands and at feet, and are processed within minutes. And it's important to me that myself and my students that were there to stand witness, that the, we're there to understand what is, you know, sort of built as a system of justice when. These folks spend, you know, maybe 15, 20 minutes with their lawyer the morning of Um, and the lawyers are bilingual and that's a good thing. But at the same time, you know, I don't I don't think it's a system that really allows for people to get the individualized attention and justice that they that they're seeking as some of them as asylum seekers. Um, And then at the end of the week, we actually do interview Border Patrol. And so we met with a border patrol agent as one of our final activities of this experience, and the students have the opportunity to get, in this case, his perspective of, of what he's doing for his work and how he understands it inside these broader systems. So my hope is that through this fairly rigorous itinerary that my students are exposed to a lot of different viewpoints and can have the opportunity to really think critically and holistically about the complexity of what's happening at our border.
1: And so you, you raised something that I know that people certainly grapple with, and that is the fact that they're coming over the border and they're becoming injured. And you're talking about the desert is, is hot, it's cold. There's you know, areas that they can fall into, injuries, et etc. et cetera. I mean, you, the whole gamut of danger is, yes. is, is set up naturally. So some people would say, well, then people wouldn't get hurt if they don't try to cross the border. So what would be your answer to that? You know, people who are trying to cross the border, how do you, how are you going to, uh, with the, with health equity, with the, not just health equity, but with just the fact that you're talking about the justice, how do you tell an asylum seeker from somebody who's just wanting to come here for economic purposes?
0: Well, I think folks you know if they're coming for asylum often will come and um, you know go to to border patrol so that they can declare their case um, that they're here to seek asylum, um, whereas others who might be coming because of economic drivers might might not present themselves um, in that way. So you know I guess i'm not I'm not an expert in terms of um, being a part of that frontline like some of the incredible heroes that we met that are meeting folks. Um, and offering assistance and at base, just trying to ensure that people can stay alive in their journey. That's really their their objective. And I think that there are, there are so many incredible folks in the desert who are trying to navigate this with folk with you know with migrants and and really think about um, what it means to to act in a humanitarian lens when folks when when migrants are coming because they're seeking opportunity or they're escaping danger in their home country. But I think that the story that doesn't often get told is the story of what is driving folks to migrate, right? People don't, you know, throughout history want to leave their communities, their homes, their livelihood, their families unless they're doing it out of desperation. And so we heard time and again these stories of folks who would say, "Gee, you know, if if I could feed my child, I wouldn't be coming, but I'm coming literally out of, you know, for survival's sake." And then again, if we think about the history of Latin American politics and the way that, frankly, the U.S. has intervened um, in a lot of uh, Central American histories and in South American histories and in Mexico's history as well, especially in systems of trade that unfortunately have disadvantaged, particularly as I mentioned, Mexican farmers, where you know we literally saw millions go unemployed just after we, or just over, well, it was about 1.3 million that went unemployed just after NAFTA because we flooded Mexico's economy with our corn exports. And of course, corn was a, huge, uh, a hugely important product of Mexico that um, you know, I think, I guess what I'm saying is that I think we have to have a broader conversation about what's fair in economy and how do we relate um, in trade and in these other aspects of how, how we are in interrelations with other nations, that has to be a part of our dialogue about how we also understand immigration
1: this is a very it's a very touchy subject it is the border
0: yeah it's a lot to think about i mean i'll say um i think for me you know a, a part of having having a deeper understanding has been sort of looking back into these histories especially since the 1990s like in 1994 we passed a policy called operation gatekeeper and that was a part of a series of many operations, like in Texas, Operation Hold the Line, and, um, and others, Operation Safeguard and whatnot. And there was this whole series of policies that passed in the 90s that were about militarizing our border. But as I said, they passed at the very moment that we, we likewise passed NAFTA in 1994, North American Free Trade Agreement, and the confluence of a policy that on one hand uh, led to some economic decline in Mexico, and on the other hand, Uh, shut the border in that very same moment was sort of a recipe for, unfortunately, human loss. And I think that's the piece, as you said, that I I keep coming back to is like, if my obligation in public health is to prevent death and disease and, um, you know, hope for better population outcomes, then I have to always hold, hold that history against those objectives. And I think that's the human rights project, right? That's our global obligation as fellow humans. So I think there's there's a lot to unpack when we think about the border, but the current policy, which has been sort of deemed this idea of prevention through deterrence, speaking of the word prevention, the way that border patrol and our border policies think of it is the idea that if if we could make the border so harsh and so difficult to cross, people would stop coming, right? And so we would erect walls and um, barricades and barriers, and then we would let the desert and the difficult terrain do the rest of the job. Well, The thing is that it didn't deter people are still moving because of of economic drivers and other factors that are very human and so that idea of prevention through the deterrence was essentially recognizing that more people would die and you know death is just not a fair yeah
1: shelley can you explain for not just the listeners but for me also health equity
0: Sure. Yeah. So, um, well, I've been really excited to be able to design this, this master of public health and health equity because it's actually it's a burgeoning framework in public health. And I think it's taking us in really exciting directions. The idea of health equity is it acknowledges that different health outcomes for populations are, are quite patterned. Right. And in a health equity frame, we understand that those differences are unfair, that they're unjust and they're unnecessary, and they're preventable. And so our job in health equity is to think about how can we acknowledge the structures that advantage some in health, but disadvantage others? And then if we can see those structures, what can we do to shift them and change them so that we can honor really optimal health outcomes for all?
1: Shelley, when we were on the airplane, you were talking about Kenya and you know the the sound of the the jet, you know, it's kind of loud, but I remember you talking about Kenya, and was I hearing you right? Did you go to Kenya?
0: Yes, yes, Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I've been a few times, actually, and I'll be heading back, returning there, which I'm really looking forward to getting back. But my work in Kenya has been actually with WE. So this organization I mentioned that started um, in 1995 by a 12-year-old has grown into a pretty uh, formidable nonprofit that does leadership for youth in terms of learning skill sets for social change and social justice, but also does some some really cool partnered uh global development. And so Kenya is a, a place where we've worked for many, many years, um, particularly in Western Kenya in the Maasai Mara. And um, it, our program is called We Villages. And and the idea is sort of how do we partner with with a village? How do we come in to do listening, to think about development, to sort of ask the questions of of not just what do folks need, but also what do they know and what are their solutions. And so WE Villages is a program that has basically five pillars of development, and it started with education. Because inevitably, as we visited communities and would sort of say, you know, what are the gaps or what are the needs? The number one thing that folks would always say is, um, you know, we want to see better education for our youth. So we've now built over a 1,000 schools around the world in Kenya. Wow, congratulations. <laughs> yeah, it's been <laughs> remarkable to see the growth. But the incredible thing is that there in Kenya, as so many young people now had graduated from from grade school, there was a need for even high schools. So we've since... Uh, building many, many community uh, grade schools or elementary schools. We've now built two girls' high schools and a boys' high school. But working in dialogue with community has been an incredible lesson because what happened was we built early schools in Kenya in partnership with community, and we're really insistent that we honor local practices. So instead of like shipping in bricks from Nairobi or foreign materials, you know, it's really a matter of asking community members, how do you build a school, right? Because they know how to do this work. And I think so much of our, our, what we observe sometimes in global development is Westerners coming in thinking that we have like the answers and the tools and the knowledge. But the cool thing about We Villages is, is it literally has been that dialogue of how do we begin? Where do you know, you teach us what you need. And so um, we have local Kenyan construction workers who do the work and who create the chip the stones by hand and bring in a lot of local materials. And it's the community coming together to create the school. And they build amazing schools that will last hundreds of years. And so we built the schools, but then in Kenya, what we actually noticed was that the boys were coming to school and not the girls. So again, it became an opportunity for dialogue, speaking with the elders and saying, well, why is it that the girls aren't coming? And what we learned is that the girls were so busy doing domestic chores that they, they couldn't come to school. And most particularly, they were walking miles to gather water from the river to capacitate their households. And so then, you know, it wasn't a matter of we don't want our girls to have an education, uh, which is often a misperception. Right. Like that. Actually, the community very much wanted to see their girls get an education. So, again, community problem solving. So off of the schools, we built these rain catchment systems that would catch the rainwater, bring it through a simple filter. Oh, that's cool. It was incredible because then the girls would come to school. They would be able to collect the water that they needed for their household and ever since then we've seen 50 50 ratios of boys and girls in our schools and then
1: that's wonderful
0: we from there the model just built so it went from school building to also including clean water and sanitation work to working on community gardening and sustainable agriculture but then also working with women's collectives on micro development and micro enterprises so You know, the idea of how we work in development is something that that developed over time and over years in dialogue with community, but it's a really cool holistic model, We villages of sort of how you partner toward greater community outcomes. And and then the fifth pillar is actually health, which, of course, I'm thrilled about. We've built a a hospital in the Maasai Mara that serves a, a pretty broad community at this point with not just primary care, but also even things like surgical care and maternal and child health.
1: What a wonderful, wonderful organization! But you mentioned something. You said, "Partnering toward a greater community outcome and teach us what you need." Mm. That just goes with problem solving almost. Partnering—that's that's, yeah. a—that's a key word there.
0: I hope. I hope that as we go in to do global projects, we can carry with us a sense of humility really in recognizing that we might, you know, we might have some resources to offer, but we're not of the community. And it's not up to us to determine what the needs are or what the, the, you know, feasible solutions might be. It's really just a matter of dialoguing and honoring what people know, and people know themselves best.
1: Well, you are very dignified, and your work
0: is very much needed. Oh, Catherine, thank you so much. Well, I'm like I said, lucky to have, have been a part of this journey. And I think I'm just uh, journeying alongside some incredible role models and mentors who've taught me. What brought you to Africa? Yes. Well, my first visit to Africa, it was it was actually not with we. I was a master of public health student myself. <laughs> and so um, one of my mentors, as I was concluding my program, um, I was Uh, or actually I didn't know him yet, but he became an important mentor to me. Uh, I traveled to Lesotho in Southern Africa with him. And so I was finishing up my master of public health degree and I was looking to do an international practicum. I studied global health. And again, that was really influenced from my early exposure on the border. And it really led me to asking a lot more questions about like, why are there such deep health inequalities around the world? And, And what would it mean to take a human rights perspective on health? and think about those intersections of social justice and, and community health. So I spoke Spanish, as I mentioned, and I thought, well, let me go anywhere, you know, in Latin America. <laughs> and I sat down with someone where I was doing my degree, and she said, well, what do you think about going to Lesotho? And I said, <laughs> Like, what continent is that on? I mean, I literally, I hadn't heard of Lesotho before, and this is a very small nation that's completely landlocked by South Africa. But it's also the nation that has the third highest prevalence of HIV still today. And back in 2004, when I arrived, 30% of adults were infected and 40% of young women. And so when I say to you, Catherine, that HIV was sort of literally decimating all aspects of society, it was palpable. Um, I had worked as an HIV educator as an undergraduate. You know, and I had been thinking and and active on issues of HIV and AIDS, but when I arrived in Lesotho, it was was quite mind-blowing to me, because what you had was, you know, it was affecting the military, it was affecting the police, it was affecting the ministries of government, the businesses, and so forth. Because when you have a full third of your population infected, of course, you see deep decline. So my first meeting was with the Minister of Health himself, which is the highest government official working on health for the nation. And I sat down with my mentor, Dr. Bill McNeil, and the Minister of Health, and he said, my mentor Bill said to him, where do we begin, you know, in responding to HIV? And he Wow, what words, those are really, I mean, just thinking about that, what words, wow. Well, I mean, I think it struck us that, you know, here we were coming into partner, and, and so he said to the minister, where do we begin? And he said, please begin with our school teachers, because they're dying too quickly for us to replace them.
1: Oh my goodness.
0: And in fact, the schoolhouses were going empty because um, you know, young women, again, forty percent of young women of childbearing age were infected with HIV, and that was primarily the teacher population, and they were literally dying too quickly for there to be a next generation of educators. And so um, you know, for me working in Lesotho too, too was sort of a journey of beginning to understand the way something as big as the HIV epidemic you know, can be structured by history. You know, in Lesotho, uh, Lesotho is a really interesting nation. It had a population of about 2 million, so fairly small, and it was actually shrinking as the result of HIV. And this is unheard of. In a developing nation, you don't see populations shrink unless it's the result of a huge natural disaster, a famine, you know, but this was like, wow, unheard of that, you know, the population is shrinking as a result of this disease. And then going back in history, if you think of colonial forces and the ways that folks have been um, shifted, speaking of migration for work to support mining, especially in South Africa, you know, what it meant was that like the social fabric in Lesotho had really been degraded uh, prior to like South Africa's independence. And, you know, so there were like a lot of histories and structures that led to why in, in Southern Africa and why in Lesotho specifically, there was such high prevalence but also some really unfortunate politics, as we've seen in the history of HIV, between like the state and the church, trying to decide what's best in responding with preventive measures. So it was really a a very intense experience in my professional development. Here I was not even quite with my newly, you know, earned Master of Public Health and working with the Minister on Health on some of the earliest responses there. But I can tell you that in those first five months that I stayed in Lesotho, I didn't wake up any Saturday or any Sunday except to funeral bells. And so I think as a young a younger professional earlier in my career, that's the kind of impact that you don't you don't sort of leave behind. And I've always thought of these as sort of my ghosts um, that I'm gonna carry because I have to somehow honor the histories that you know that I become witness to.
1: I love what you just said. I love that. Right there, what you just said is such an incredible, positive imprint and it's just a a wonderful tribute to the journey that you were going through and that you did. You, your path crossed their paths and it was an incredibly emotional time. Obviously, you're passionate about it, you're yeah. very passionate about your work. <laughs> otherwise you wouldn't have stayed with it mm. it is just a journey that is one that you don't hear about very often yeah. it's one of those stories that's hidden well and then you had your experience out there did you get any type of any changes enacted there for the people or bring any health services was anything done that you were able to see
0: witness yes. Well, yeah, Lesotho, um, we've seen changes, most certainly. We did this really cool program called Problem Solving for Better Health, which was really just about bringing folks together to dialogue and actually to action plan. Um, And I really think of it as a model of community organizing. You know, I guess if I've learned anything about You know, when we're thinking about public health and health equity, um, something we have to be very careful of is that we're not coming in, especially as outsiders, trying to imagine that we have the answers or that we have the tools or the knowledge or some sort of superior perspective on, you know, what will solve the issues. Often it's, it's really a matter of problem solving together in community to think about how do we actually just remove the barriers how do we honor um, people's incredible ingenuity to to come together in community and to think about health proactively. So in my time in Lesotho, this working and this problem solving for better health taught me a lot about action planning. It's actually um, been quite informative in terms of bringing some of that action planning curriculum back to my students in the Master of Public Health program in our work with youth through WE um, and whatnot. So it was it was pretty formative for me working in community and in those kind of community dialogues, but essentially folks came together, created action plans, thought about prevention education, thought about access to the kinds of resources folks needed to prevent HIV infections. And fortunately, there, you know, Lesotho um, continues to struggle with HIV. It's not that it's it's an issue that has been solved by any means, but but things are changing for the it and, and it was, you know, quite remarkable to be a, a, a very small part of that story early on and to have learned from many incredible mentors and community in responding to HIV. So, things like rolling out first voluntary counseling and testing services and eventually access to HIV medications. But the experience left me with really a lot of big questions about, about what it means to be a part of a global society that allows access to some and not others <laughs> that i think is really reflective literally of this question of like whose lives matter in the world like who do we honor and who do we fight for as a, as a global society because in 2004 you know this was a decade after in the united states we had rolled out optimal hiv treatment and you know it just raises these questions of why you know, why some get access and some don't. So that sort of sent me on a, on a much longer journey of thinking about issues of of uh, medication access and how things like trade policy shape that and ultimately led me to 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 where I am today, I guess, to this incredible opportunity to create a new Master of Public Health that I hope will be one that prepares students to ask these sort of difficult questions about global health inequalities, about domestic health inequalities and what we can do better
1: why is there access for some and not others? I mean, if that country is in
0: dire straits. Well, you know, I learned so much just by asking like those very questions, it's so great to ask, right? Because it leads you on a long journey of discovery. And for me, it was learning about actually trade and patent policy, which in essence, sort of raises the prices of uh, prices of medication. You know, how can it be that I'm visiting these communities where literally there are grandparents left and there are children, but no parents, right? Because HIV wipes out the middle generation first. And so I felt actually, to be honest, I felt really angry, like confronting that and thinking about how can it be that, you know, meanwhile, I later got a job overseeing HIV care policy for the state of Maine under the Ryan White Care Act. And, you know, in the time that I was working in Maine, but then also traveling to Lesotho, It was a real juxtaposition to think about the fact that in the US, folks with HIV, it's not that they have necessarily perfect access, but pretty good access since in 1995, we unrolled what we what you could think of as triple combination therapy, like combining three different or sometimes more medications in one can be highly effective in treating HIV. And so I started to ask myself, why is it that in the U.S. folks are getting access to this, you know, like the best treatments, when in Southern Africa, this isn't the case. So it sent me, Catherine, on a long journey of, of <laughs> research and of needing to understand bigger systems of globalization, and especially trade policy. So during that same year, 1995, when we unrolled the best HIV treatment, triple therapy, we also uh, started the World Trade Organization, which really enshrined like past policies that are about patents to protect innovations, including drugs. And what that meant was that it, it allowed for 20-year patents on new innovations. Um, and, oh rationale for the patent, of course, is that it should allow the drug company to profit so that they can reinvest in research and development. And, and that's a, you know, a fair rationale. That's fair, absolutely. The innovations and put the profits back in. But then when you dig deeper and keep peeling the onion, what you learn is that those profits, little of them actually go back into research and development, a lot of it goes into marketing. And a lot of the innovations, like in the 2000s, if you looked at the top, you know, the top, Performing drugs, let's say, on the market. Ninety percent of them were actually innovated by public institutions, not not by drug companies. So it sort of revealed over many years of research and learning more and and uh, going on to study further with my doctoral studies that there there's a real complex system around patents that we should be asking bigger questions about, really everyone, not just folks who need high-cost drugs like HIV meds or cancer meds. But um, these patent policies might be good for some, but I would say they're not good for most of us. But we have we have drugs. Yeah, we do. And that's so essential, right? Because, I mean, keeping folks alive, allowing them to live long and longer health- lives, li- yeah. Means they're also in so many ways contributing to society, you think of all the lives lost and that's so many stories lost. That's unnecessary. That's again, the preventable piece. Um, when we think about preventing these unnecessary outcomes and, you know, when you have, as we were, you know, paying 10 to $12,000 per patient per year for HIV meds in the U S when finally, you know, drugs became accessible across Southern Africa, not because of U S uh, responses. Uh, But actually, Indian drug companies started to make generic drugs. And what we saw was that now drugs could be $200 per patient uh, per year, right? And it really taught us that it's not the drugs that are expensive, it really is the patents that make them expensive. And, And I'm not saying that when you create an innovation, you shouldn't profit. I understand the importance of honoring people's innovations. But I think we could come up with fair systems that also honor access. And there's been some really cool global movements to that effect, thinking about what it would mean to have a global patent pool, where everybody, you know, could benefit from the innovations that are keeping folks alive and living healthfully and well with HIV. And so I think there's a lot of possibility out there.
1: Well, you've chosen this career path, and, and you've chosen it, and you are just guiding so many other people in this direction to to do something better in our world, and to make a difference for people. But what was it like growing up for you? How did you choose this path? What made you decide to go this route? Oh,
0: (laughs) great question. Gee, I feel like I think of my life in chapters. And I think my first... So that would
1: be chapter one.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know, well, I suppose um, an early chapter that was important to me was when I was 13. I didn't know what what I was going to do in the world. I wanted to be an artist. I was I was fairly artistic and was always doing sculpture and pottery and painting and and so I, I really enjoyed that work. But when I was 13, I one summer, a friend of mine said, "Hey, I, I'm going to volunteer at a school this summer, and would you like to join me?" And I said, "Great!" And it was a school for children with physical disabilities. I just uh, I I that very first summer was working with young boys mostly with muscular dystrophy. And started learning about their stories, and and with some uh, diagnoses of muscular dystrophy, you know, life expectancy can be about 20 or so. And here I was, 13 years old, working with other, you know, 13 and other, you know, teens, basically. But they were dealing with such a very different reality from mine, you know. And I think that I grew up with um, barely sheltered and and sort of privileged, and hadn't actually confronted death uh, personally but I started to that summer in sort of thinking about their mortality and, and observing them coping with their own mortality but also just being young kids having a blast and going to summer camp and and so I think over actually many years of of mixing in and working in that program and working with young folks with disabilities it set me on a path of thinking about maybe doing something different and so up, all the way up until s- junior year and senior year I was grappling with what would I be and I I was with either going to art school or becoming an occupational therapist. And I, I became an occupational therapist and worked in pediatrics. And so I think that was an early experience that was important to me in terms of, of exposing me to, well, yeah, To I think it's been a journey of figuring out the ways that I've, I'm privileged and and then also questioning why these systems have allowed privilege for some and not others. And so that, you know, over many years and experiences that has sort of just exposed me to this this journey of figuring out how we we connect, but also more than just connecting, sort of how we question those systems, those policies, those structures that are disadvantaging some uh, to the benefit of others.
1: Shelley K. White, you are an incredible person taking a journey from the observations you made and the emotions you had as a 13 year old and circling around the different paths you've crossed up until today with your health equity and reform. I have so much enjoyed this time with you and your positive imprint. You are truly an incredible, wonderful positive imprint.
0: Oh, Catherine, thank you so much. I have to say it's been such a pleasure speaking with you and learning about other folks' positive imprint through your podcast. And I just, again, I really appreciate being a part of it.
1: Wow. Somehow, I have to honor the histories that I have become witness to. Inspiring. Thank you for listening. You can learn more about Shelley and her research by going to simmons.edu and search Shelley White in the faculty. Next week's episode features a storyteller who shares her craft globally. Thank you, Chris Knoll, for this great music. Learn more about Chris and his career at chrisknoll.com. Your Positive Imprint is free to listen to from my website, yourpositiveimprint.com, my Facebook page at Your Positive Imprint, or iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, no matter where you listen from, Your Positive Imprint is free. But please support my podcast by following me on Facebook or Instagram at Your Positive Imprint. Or by writing positive reviews, hitting those five stars, and not all apps provide these buttons. But you can also subscribe to the podcast by downloading my episodes or tapping on subscribe or the follow button. Your positive imprint. What's your P.I.?